0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm
3: Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday... March 21st,
2: 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights in today's feature report. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up
3: in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines.
2: At the Ellettsville Town Council meeting on March 14th, Council Member Scott Oldham presented a contract from Axon Enterprises to buy new supplies for the police department. Oldham shared that the police department needs to update its body-worn camera system, including an upgrade of digital storage for body cam footage.
1: So what they are proposing um, is their body-worn camera system is in need of replacement. Um, They have a decent system. Well, it was a decent system for four or five years ago. Um, These kind of things are wear items because they're used this much. And to be honest with you, the storage is a big issue. Um, Not only the storage, but the redaction, which is required by law before video is is released, and or the transmission of that to the Monroe County Prosecutor's Office and other entities that are entitled to it. Um, So all of these things rolls into, meaning it costs more probably than what most people would think. Um, Essentially, you're paying for the cameras and for the storage of it. Um, That is a requirement under any law as far as the storage and how long certain items are retained. So it's not that we really have an option but to do um, some of this stuff.
2: Oldham said that the tasers currently used by the police department are outdated and need replacing. He elaborated on the proposed contract and why he believes the council should move forward with it.
1: Along with that, um, they have um, tasers which is a, a less lethal weapon uh, which is used to help subdue prisoners if they become combative in fact it was an item that was suggested uh, almost reckon well suggested recommended um, by the president obama's 21st century uh, commission on future policing task force uh, it's the only thing mentioned by name in there um, theirs are about 10 or 12 years old um, and needed to be replaced years and years ago but in that case it just wasn't fiscally possible but we've kind of come to the point now where it's fiscally irresponsible to not replace them um, because again you've got a lot riding on that it has to work if it's called upon to work it's not something that you can yeah maybe it works maybe it doesn't No, these these are people's lives both the officer and the suspect that you have to take into consideration it's got to work perfectly if it's used um, so for a combination of both of those this is a five-year contract uh, it's being recommended with axon um, which is one of the world leaders in this in fact it's the one that Minerva County Sheriff's Department and the Bloomington Police Department both use so it's a system that's well known within the county and the prosecutor's office is very familiar with how to obtain the videos from it and all the technology that goes with it to help in a successful prosecution for year one um, our buy-in quote to this is $24,923.46. For the additional four years after that, it is $14,309.49. Now, that includes all of the devices. Um, That includes storage, uh, which is the bulk of what you're paying for, which is a cloud-based storage system and all the associated software uh, and training that's required to work both of these systems. Um, so to be blunt in in my personal opinion you we don't have too much of a choice particularly with the tasers and with the way the state law is configured at this and from the liability hole of not having them um, you really need uh, to make sure that we do all these things this is a very good price it's an incredibly competitive price Um, and again it's a known system that's known both to Ellisville PD other area law enforcement agencies and most importantly the prosecutor's office as to how to, to deal with any system has its eccentricities. Every system has its own software issues and or nuances. And this is one that's, quite frankly, been bulletproof for the agencies so far that have used it.
2: One board member asked for clarification on how the council would fund the initiative. Oldham responded that the council would need to establish a special appropriation of $25,000 for the tasers alone. About $57,000 would be allocated to update body-worn cameras the council approved the five-year contract with Axon unanimously. On March
3: 15th, at the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting, Vice President Beth Hollingsworth thanked all the workers who have been filling in potholes. I would like to thank everyone that was out filling potholes, probably not just on uh, regular hours, but after hours. And they've done a great job, and there are always a lot of them. as a scourge of the public works in the uh, end of winter beginning of spring so thank you all for all you do with
1: filling potholes.
3: Public Works Director Adam Wason shared a sign and maintenance agreement with Covenanter Neighborhood Association.
1: So the
4: Covenanter Neighborhood Association applied and received a small and simple grant to fund the purchase and installation of eight sign toppers. The toppers will be installed on the street name marker Sign polls, which will identify their neighborhood to the residents and the community. Um, in accordance with the terms of the agreement and Title 20 of the Bloomington Municipal Code, the Covenanted Neighborhood Association has agreed to purchase this public sign, gift the public sign to the city, and maintain the public signs.
3: The board approved the agreement with a passing vote, with one board member abstaining from voting due to their position on the executive board for the Neighborhood Association. The board will meet again in person on March 28th.
2: The Bloomington Commission on Sustainability held a special session on March 16th to address climate change inequities. Co-chair of the commission, Neishla Rutsong, gave a presentation on the Just Transition Movement.
5: The origin of the Just Transition Movement Just transition strategies were first forged by labor unions and environmental justice groups rooted in low-income communities of color who saw the need to phase out the industries that were harming workers, community health, and the planet. And at the same time, provide just pathways for workers to transition to other jobs It was rooted in workers defining a transition away from polluting industries in alliance with fence line and frontline communities. The environmental justice movement grew out of a response to the system of environmental racism, wherein communities of color and low-income communities have been and continue to be disproportionately exposed to and negatively impacted by hazardous pollution and industrial practices. Its roots are in the civil rights movement and are in sharp contrast to the mainstream environmental movement, which has failed to understand or address this injustice.
2: Rootsong shared that there are seven principles that the movement upholds. One is that the transition away from polluting industrial jobs should be replaced by meaningful work. She also said that the movement calls for localized food production.
5: Regenerative ecological economics. Just transition must advance ecological resilience, reduce resource consumption, restore biodiversity and traditional ways of life, and undermine extractive economies, including capitalism, that erode the ecological basis of our collective well being. This requires a relocalization and democratization of primary production and consumption by building up local food systems, local clean energy and small-scale production that are sustainable economically and ecologically. This also means producing to live well without living better at the expense of others.
2: To hear all of the principles, you can listen to her presentation archived on the Community Access Television Services website.
3: Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of Kite Line, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Kite Line airs each Friday at 5:30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Palestinian prisoners and administrative detainees across prisons and detention centers in Israel are continuing their protest against the repressive measures imposed on them by the Israeli prison authorities. Israeli authorities had imposed new additional restrictions and measures on the prisoners in the aftermath of the Golboa prison break in September last year, when six Palestinian detainees managed to escape from prison before being apprehended a few days later. Some of the retributive measures imposed by the Israeli authorities were separating prisoners by political affiliation, solitary confinement, cutting off access to canteen facilities, and reducing the break time allotted to them to spend in the prison yard. According to the Palestinian Prisoners Club, the prisoners launched their actions on February 5th. They have begun to disobey prison rules, are refusing daily security checks, and staging sit-ins in prison yards. The prisoners have reportedly formed a follow-up committee composed of all the different political factions among the prisoners. The committee represents the prisoners in negotiation with the prison authorities and decides the course of actions for the prisoners' protest. As per reports, Palestinian prisoners are set to launch a mass hunger strike on March 25th if their demands are not met. Around 500 administrative detainees are also involved in a historic protest against their arbitrary detention. They are boycotting Israeli military courts for a record 65th day in a row, refusing to be present at initial hearings, appeal hearings, and later hearings in Israeli military and civilian courts. Among them, four detainees are under the age of 18 and one is a woman. The detainees launched their protest on January 1st under the banner, quote, our decision is freedom, no to administrative detention. Several detainees are refusing to meet their interrogators from the Israeli domestic intelligence agency Shin Bet. Those suffering from health problems requiring medical care have also started boycotting the prisons clinics, medicines, and medical checkups. They are demanding an end to the policy of administrative detention and the immediate release of all detainees. Many Palestinian detainees have in the past embarked on hunger strikes to protest their illegal detention and secure their release from Israel. The international community and human rights groups have for years called on Israel to stop the policy of administrative detention, where Palestinians are detained indefinitely without charge or trial for extended periods of time. Administrative detention orders can be renewed every four to six months based on secret evidence, which is not shared even with the detainees or their lawyers. Despite international criticism, the number of orders issued on a yearly basis is steadily increasing. Israel passed 1,595 such orders in 2001, a significant spike from the 1,114 orders issued in 2020. 1,742 orders were issued in 2016, among the highest documented. Since 2015, Israel has issued 8,700 administrative detention orders against Palestinians, according to the Palestinian Prisoners' Society, PPS. This year, 96 orders have been issued in the month of January alone. In total, there are approximately 4,600 Palestinian prisoners in 17 Israeli jails, including 32 women and 180 minors and 500 administrative detainees.
2: In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, about his roots as an environmental attorney his early life and career, and what inspired him to be environmentally conscious. Stay tuned for part one of this ongoing series on the WFHB Local News.
6: Joining us today is environmentalist and attorney Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. An organization committed to advancing the legal rights of nature and environmental rights. He is also co founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and is widely recognized as the founder of the contemporary community rights and rights of nature movements, which have resulted in the adoption of several hundred laws across the United States and around the world. He is on the board of advisors of the New Earth Foundation. He is cum laude graduate of Widener Law School and has thrice received their public interest law award. He is licensed to practice in Pennsylvania and is a recipient of the Pennsylvania Farmer Union's Golden Triangle Legislative Award. He is admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court, the 3rd, 4th, 8th, and 10th Circuit Courts of Appeals, and the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. And he currently resides in Spokane, Washington. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, Mother Jones, and The Nation. And he was named in 2007 as one of Forbes magazine's top 10 revolutionaries. And in 2018, he was named one of the top 400 environmentalists in the last 200 years in the American Environmental Leaders Encyclopedia. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Yeah, good to be with you, Zero. So uh, why don't we start with a little bit of your background how you became environmentally conscious and what brought you to study and practice law?
4: Sure, so I guess we can start way back in terms of my upbringing, but uh, my parents are uh, biology professors at universities and operated a kind of animal refuge facility for a number of years in Alabama, which is where I was born, and Virginia, where I was basically spent my uh, high school years. And uh, so I think just an appreciation of life Appreciation of other life forms that growing up in an environment like that, it's tough to do anything else, I think, as a career. Um, my brother's a, a veterinarian in North Carolina. So we both kind of took a career path that involved, you know, either animals or protecting the environment or doing the legal work that we do. But for about 10 years, I practiced convention, what I refer to lovingly now as conventional, traditional environmental law, which basically means trying to enforce this patchwork of regulations and laws that we have in the United States that ostensibly were adopted to protect the natural environment. And so for for about a decade, I represented about 100 different community organizations across the state of Pennsylvania that were targeted for things like frack wastewater injection wells or uh, factory hog farms or toxic waste incinerators you know, all the hundreds of different single issue projects that communities face off against every day in the United States and around the globe. And most of that work had me representing these groups in front of, you know, zoning hearing boards and administrative law judges and sometimes in federal court. But it was all trying to enforce these national environmental laws that most people think are there to actually protect the natural environment. But in reality, those laws actually operate just as negotiation zones for corporations to come in, basically shave some of the rough edges off whatever project they're considering a placement into that community, and then moving forward with the project anyway. And so even though we would win what I refer to as skirmishes on the on the outside of some of these battles in terms of setbacks, you know how many feet do you have to be back from a school if you're going to put in a factory farm? Uh, or parts per million, whatever you can emit into the air to the water as allowed or legalized by those federal and state environmental laws. We were basically in the trenches dealing with that kind of stuff. And after about 10 years of watching almost the complete failure of those federal and state environmental laws provide any kind of protection whatsoever for the communities that we were representing, that we decided to, to switch gears and do something else because it seems that the conventional traditional environmental law today is really about battling over those parts per million, how much a community is gonna get poisoned or polluted, not whether they're going to get poisoned or polluted at all. And so we came kind of to our own understanding of how the industry, environmental legal industry is set up, who it actually serves, and uh, started to try to do something different other than do that work. So that's kind of how I ended up in the, in the work that we do today.
6: Yeah, and I I think a lot of people do have that blind trust in these supposed agencies that ostensibly are looking out for us. But things like the Flint, Michigan problem with their water has made it a little more conscious to people that it's not necessarily a, a bulwark to count on.
4: Absolutely. I think in some ways, it's natural that people rely on agency regulators and, in fact, their own elected officials to do stuff to help them, because that's our model of representative democracy, that we hire the best people. I mean, that's the myth. You know, we hire them through elections, and agency regulators are supposed to be looking out for the communities themselves. But the real clients generally, or should I put it this way, that the laws underneath which those agencies operate. Are generally written by the largest corporations in the biggest industries in the United States. Because at the table, you know, you don't have communities sitting at the table when these regulations get negotiated or the laws controlling what the regulations can do. And so it's kind of a farce to believe that we have anything close to a democratic system operating when the largest actors around the table at the legislature are, you know, chemical waste management and, uh, you know. Uh, gas companies and um, other agribusiness corporations like Smithfield Foods or Hatfield Foods. Those are the folks that you have continuously in that cycle who are writing the laws underneath which we operate. And then we as kind of like subordinate little mice are running around trying to enforce those legal requirements that have been put in place by the very industries that we're attempting to fight. So it kind of shouldn't come as a surprise, I think, the most that things are worse now from an environmental perspective then things were 40 years ago when the major environmental laws were passed simply because we're not at the controls we're not driving anything we're on the receiving end and so everything we do is defensive and anybody that plays plays chess or any other strategic game knows that if you're always on the defensive you're going to lose and unfortunately when we lose our communities lose with us as well as the natural environment
6: yeah and i guess another layer of the issue is between the state and the local community i know that uh, when local communities have tried to do things like ban the kfos the confined animal feeding operations in their town or in their county that sort of been captured at the state level to uh, not allow them to do that
4: yeah i think it's a uh, you raised something that i don't think a lot of people understand and in fact, we didn't understand, you know, first six or seven years of, of legal practice, which is that our communities, and when we say community, we're generally talking about our city, our village, our town, our township, our borough, whatever the municipal geographic unit is uh, that, you know, we elect people to local government. Uh, those are the municipal geographic units. It, we, I don't think a lot of us understand that those units are completely controlled by the state government that the state government has plenary or almost complete authority over what our community can and can't do from a law passage standpoint. So if if my city or village wants to pass a law banning factory farms, in the example that that you raised, the, the, the question becomes, is the municipality allowed to pass that law banning factory farms? And when courts review that situation, They look to state law and say, well, does state law allow the municipality to ban factory farms? And the answer to that generally in every state at this point in the US is no, because the state has passed regulations that regulate the operation of those factory farms at the local level. And that's been read by courts to mean that the state has exclusive uh, authority to regulate and control. And because the local community, if they ban a factory farm, that factory farm corporation can't have a permit to operate from the state while at the same time being banned by the municipality from operating where it wants to operate. It becomes a conflict between the two. And when the court looks at the conflict, they automatically override the municipality with the state. And so in terms of local democratic control, it's safe to say that we almost have none because the state defines what that that scope of local control is. And you'll see it in real time as well. If the state doesn't have a law in place and a municipality moves forward to ban something at the local level, sometimes the state legislature will in real time write a law to prevent what just happened at the municipal level. And a lot of people will say, well, they can't do that. The, the, my city passed it first and the state can't come in after the fact and overturn it. Well, yes, they can. That's the system we live under. It's not, it's not a democratic system. It's not really a democracy at the local level. If you have something that's harming you, and you want to ban it? You actually have to ask for permission to ban it from the state. If this, you know, and the situation is that on almost all heavily regulated big industry issues like factory farms or fracking, energy extraction, uh, you know everything running to toxic waste incinerators, waste management, water withdrawals, uh, some in some states timber cutting or t- conservation of timberlands. Basically, all of those big ticket items, the corporations have gotten to first, and they've written the laws to legalize what they want to do. And that legalization framework is then written into state law. So when our communities say, well, geez, that toxic waste incinerator is going to poison us, and we want to ban it because we should have a right to protect our health, safety, and welfare from that thing coming in. The answer is you don't right now. You don't unless you seize it somehow. And that's what's exciting. I think a lot of communities in the U.S. have said we're not going to accept that status quo of just laying down and letting the state government controlled by these industry kind of puppet masters uh, control what we can and can't do to protect ourselves at the local level. So we're going to move forward and do it anyway. It's kind of like a a civil disobedience movement that says we're not going to follow this structure of law because it's anti-democratic. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting things happening right now in the U.S. and, of course, other places. But here people coming to the realization that they're not protected. They shouldn't have to beg their agency regulators to protect them. And they certainly shouldn't have to control the state government to be able to have the scope to protect themselves. And so people are pushing back against that. I think that's a very healthy thing.
2: That was WFHB correspondent Sarah Rose speaking with educator, author, and rights of nature attorney Thomas Lindsay. Stay tuned for part one, which will air later this week on the local news.
3: been listening to the WFHB local news. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, community access television
2: services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the social climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young.
3: coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio.